Hello and welcome to Life in Translation. Today we're joined by CEO and publisher of Multilingual Magazine, Marjolein Hut Nibelink, or Marla, which is much easier for me to say. Marla realized early on that uh, the Netherlands was too small for her. After traveling to 30 plus countries over the span of 10 years, she moved to the United States in 2014. She holds a degree in communication from the, uh, from the University of Rotterdam and has long had an affinity for cre uh, creative writing. She also has experience in sales, marketing, and everything in between. Marla, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it and appreciate you helping me pronounce your name correctly. Did, did I, is that introduction good or what else can you tell us about you? So that was very good. Uh, I would have to say that you did better at pronouncing my name than my my ex-husband who uh, tried for seven years and he never got it right. So, oh, well, so that's, that's off. That's <laughs> off. Uh, yeah, thank you. And let me see. Uh, it makes me sound like I'm kind of all over the place, um, which is true. I've had a lot of different jobs as well before coming to Multilingual. I've uh, been a bike mechanic, a cook in a Michelin star restaurant. I sold tailor suits. So uh, definitely, both literally and figuratively, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, but the one professional ambition, like you pointed at, that I've always kept is to be a writer. Yeah, very, very cool. By the way, we, um, I was just, of course, I've traveled through Netherlands often because, and I can't say the name of the airport either, Schiphol is, is a good... Uh, is a good hub to getting to Europe. Um, but for the first time this summer, I, we spent four days in, in Amsterdam. So it was kind of fun and something that I've never done. And I really enjoyed it because I speak, I speak German. And um, after a couple of days, I could pretty much read most everything mm. and, and understand a lot that was being said to me or, or I, or that I overheard um, in Dutch. So kind of cool. Um you have a your background is in marketing and creative writing. What has your experience been like working in multifaceted uh, within the multiple facets of multilingual magazine? Yeah, thanks. I mean, it is very multifaceted. You know, there's a, a publishing aspect, there's a writing aspect, there's an editing aspect, there's a very big creative aspect that you don't have for online writing. So I started in marketing uh, with multilingual about eight years ago and was surrounded by writers and editors, um, but I, I didn't feel like my English writing skills were uh, of a degree that I, you know, could submit anything to any publication. So learning from the inside how that process worked and then learning through seeing how, you know, things were edited and things were proved, um, I really... Um, I, I improved on my English. So I, I still feel handicapped somewhat because English is my second language. Um, but I kept reading and writing and eventually um, I'm now a supporting editor uh, and I've matured in my writing and feel much more confident about it now. So that's an aspect that I bring in. I just, I've always loved language. I was uh, eavesdropping on the uh, the grade ahead of me in elementary school when English started. So I would do my math really fast and then try to pay attention to the next grade, which, you know, there we were sharing classrooms and learn, you know, how to read the clock and how to say, you know, last week was my birthday and things like that. Right. 
in English. Yeah. yeah, well, let me just say, number one, the the Dutch speak the best English of any European country, for sure. I don't know what it is, if it, if the language sounds, if the sounds, the pronunciation is close enough, but the Dutch speak number uh, the best, it's been my experience, but also... There's a fun fact, actually, that I want to throw in there, because yeah. in, in the northeast of the Netherlands, there's, you know, an area called Friesland, and it, yeah. it actually goes into uh, northwestern Germany. So there's German Friesland and there's Dutch Friesland, and they have a separate language that's an official, you know, uh, individual language. And it is the most similar language to English yeah. that exists. Yeah, well, I I believe that, and I and I think we've actually done some translations in that. In in uh, I'm trying to think of the the language. It's not Friesland. It's called something else. But anyway, Frisian. yeah. And um, but number two, your English. You for a native English speaker, you have to really pay attention to you to notice that you're not maybe a native English speaker because your English is so good. I mean, it There's really. A really there's is a, native there's a couple of words <clears throat> that i still mess up middle i say middle like a five-year-old apparently <laughs> instead of saying middle properly so uh, yes <laughs> middle and then things uh that have t's and d's in it yeah i noticed time. i did notice so in american english we'll, we'll usually make the t in writing a d we'll make mm -hmm. it a flap I say writing so, but and you were you pronounce that very uh, pronounce that very uh, clearly, and that's okay. It doesn't doesn't make any difference. So, but it's, anyway, your English is perfect. Thanks. It's it. I have a funny anecdote actually. Um, so we are taught British English very adamantly in yeah. high school. Yeah. Uh, there is no room for using American spelling for using <laughs> American grammar. They're very very hard on the British English, and I really loved my English teachers. And when my sister graduated, who's six years younger than me, um, I went to her graduation. My teacher was there. I had already moved to the United States. I started speaking with this really terrible California slang, you know. <laughs> and so he's like, what do you do? And we've always spoken in English to each other. And so I do my elevator pitch in this California accent. And you could just see his face just droop into this like sadness, like, oh my God, I failed. She was my best English student. And now, now listen. So. Oh yeah, now listen for sure. Yeah, I find that funny. I, I suppose the same thing happens in other languages like Spanish and Portuguese, but British English and American English are, are the same thing, essentially, just a little bit of pronunciation, a little spelling difference, but occasionally vocabulary difference, but it's it's the same thing. So that's that's interesting that uh, although as an American, I love a British accent, a really good like broiled British accent or mm -hmm. an Australian accent. I, you know, I love it. I hope they think the same of my accent. I don't know my accent. So who knows? I lived in Australia for a while and got to speak real like WA Australian. Yeah. So it was quite funny it. as well. That's stuck with me. It. If I talk to an Australian, it immediately comes back. It comes back to you, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so not only are you the CEO of Multilingual Magazine, which is an amazing publication, but you also take the time to write, as we mentioned. Do you have a favorite article that you've written recently? So I haven't written much you know, publicly. I, I do have four blogs. Uh, that have remained largely inactive um, because I spent so much of my you know, creative 
thinking creative skills with the magazine. Right. Um, talking about English and American, I just wrote one about soccer or football. Oh, yeah. And the interesting thing about that one, <clears throat> excuse me, that I told to a lot of my friends as well is I went into it with an idea that I understood what the truth was behind, you know, the word, um, the word fight between Americans and English, uh, between whether to call it soccer or football, right, yeah. during the World Cup. Right. And this was all based around the, the ad that they had. It was like, a yeah, it was, a, it was a, an ad um that played all the time during the world cup yep where david beckham and all right uh oh, peyton, peyton manning peyton, yeah exactly peyton manning um argued over it and yes. i thought well i know the answer so i'm just going to start writing it with the assumption that i know and i'm going to draw my conclusion and then right. as a good writer should i did some research and found out that i was completely wrong and that most people are completely wrong and they don't know how it works um, and it's, it's such that the British, uh, had developed, you know, both rugby football, which they call rugby football and soccer football. Yes. So football is a group name for soccer, rugby, and that's how they separated them out. Right. But yeah. they called it soccer, soccer, football, soccer, uh, and, and rugby football. Then the Americans, I think it was in, at Harvard university, I think in like 1814, um, developed american football and they called it they also called it soccer they called it football soccer or something like that and so then the english said heck no that's our sport so we're going to be adamant about calling it football and then you guys can call you can't call that thing football anymore you know so it that's where that's where it's at so it's really the british that came up with the term Something. Yeah, you know what? I I because of the World Cup, I think I recently heard that myself. I always thought that soccer was an American term, but I I learned, like you explained, that it, it actually came from the British. So pretty, pretty wild. So yeah. Very cool. Um yeah, yeah and that must have been a, an interesting article, especially given the time of, of year and um, with the World Cup and everything. Um yeah. So you have helped multilingual become um um, improve its popularity significantly over the past seven years. Um, what does it take to get in front of your readers and, and get them to click? What are, what are things that uh, are interesting to your readers? Well, this is something that's constantly developing. So we have a, a readership survey every year, uh, and then we always adjust based on the results of that. We have a great editorial board that we keep talking to, and they have um, they keep really good um, touch with their specific you know, um, the specialty that they're on the editorial board for. So we have Aki Ito, we have Yosechi, we have Natalie Kelly, you know, yep. these are Miguel Bernal. So, uh, and then Barry Olson for interpreting. So yep. these, these are the people that know what, um, what they're, and I'm keep thinking of the Dutch word, Achterban, uh, what, what the people in their networks are interested in. And so yeah. we can yep. kind of, spitball ideas with them and and come up with uh you know with what we need to do and it is very exciting we had twenty thousand followers on linkedin this month uh subscriptions have been soaring throughout all of 2022 the magazine was at its most significant in the 90s though uh i mean before the surge that we're seeing now when it offered extremely focused information for language technology users yes and most of that 
need had been surpassed, you know, the need for that kind of information in the magazine being surpassed by the global access to the internet. And the magazine went through a dip, uh, like a lot of magazines this did. Uh, so I started looking at other magazines that started in a niche and then expanded to a more broad, you know, audience, a wider audience appeal. And I was thinking of Wired, for example, Yeah. and they do a great job. And so you know, looking at the masters and having ambitions, I think helps us um, establish, um, you know, a good strategy to to keep increasing popularity. Yeah, and I was on actually, top of that. Yeah. Uh, sorry, just no, to finish ahead. that thought. Um, you know, it. I, I like to compare the soar in popularity of the magazine now to a soar in popularity in like vinyl records, right? Oh, yeah. become, I think, nostalgic for these handmade and, and artfully produced mediums that oh, yeah. trigger our creative mind and relaxes into a non-digital space. I mean, you want to offer something that is off screen, something that people want to pick up after they're done with work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been, I had, I've been a subscriber or been a reader of multilingual magazine since the nineties when I was probably in my master's program as well. So, um, and I remember that. Um, I, I'm wondering, um, um, I also get the weekly newsletter, the mm. weekly digest that comes, and I find that really um, quick hitting, which I really like as, you know, a busy professional. Mm. Um, there are others that are out there like, and the one that comes to mind is like Slater. Mm -hmm. um, how do you view... And we don't necessarily have to include this in, no, in the, but I'm just asking you, how do you view Slater and other maybe competitive competitors to multilingual? Um, are they, um, do you look at them favorably? Are they part, do you, are you interested in the research they, they do or how, what, what is your take on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a question a lot of people want to ask and then they don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's totally fine. So I'm I'm always excited to answer that question. Yeah. Um, I've been with Multilingual for eight years, and we were the only you know significant news provider in the space. Yeah, you were in, in our industry. Exactly. Uh, and I think it was like around 2016, maybe that Slater came up. Yeah. And it it was immediately um you know reason for concern, um, and then it ended up pushing us to this next level that we're at right now. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. It's very yeah. easy to just kind of like sit back and say, yeah, we got this. And so it, it pushed us. And yeah. then we had a change of ownership two and a half years ago. And that really helped us um, reestablish ourselves as a, as a more modern um, and a more tech savvy, you know, news source. Yeah. We use, I use Slater as a source of information. So our editors go to Slater and, and check on stories. I don't know if they do the same in return. Um, I do know that um, we have no problem stating their, their research. Um, you know, we get yep. writers that state their research, that state CSA, that state NIMSI. So we're not trying to create a form of cancel culture or, or competitiveness. Um, yeah. I see that they focus on a specific group subgroup in the industry and we yeah. try to be a lot more inclusive and open and broad and approachable to yeah. anyone at any stage um, yeah. in language services yeah and i think that's generally the attitude of the industry as a whole especially you know for the freelancers around the world is 
the the attitude of of being complimentary and being supportive and sharing ideas and and things like that. And so I I, I appreciate multilingual taking that approach too. Um, hey, I got to I got to ask you a question. Is that Arabic behind you on the on the wall? And if it is, what is oh, it? Oh boy, this one here. Yes. Okay, so this is you know Tim Brooks endangered alphabets. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So these are uh, some of his. Oh, carvings. Oh, and okay. These he originally gifted to Donna Parrish. Oh, wow. And then I inherited them along with them. And I have to look because it will say on the back. Yeah, it'll um, say on the back what it is. Yukirang. Okay. Because he only does endangered alphabets. So this yeah. is Yukirang, and the word oh. means writing. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. I, uh, I would love to have that hanging on my wall as well. So that's really beautiful. I had to ask. It looked like it, you know, it looked like it was maybe right to left and maybe related to Arabic. I wasn't sure. So very cool. Okay. So for those who want to write and be published within um, within uh, the topics of translation and localization, what advice would you give them? Uh, I always say find something you're passionate about. You know, uh, nothing is more attractive to read than a personal story. Uh, what are you most proud of in your career? Who did yeah. you help overcome a localization obstacle and how? So many yeah. of our many of our writers are non-native English speakers and they feel held back to contribute because of you know an insecurity. And I just want to tell everyone who might feel that way that it's okay. We have a professional team of editors and layout designers who will make any contribution beautiful without losing your voice. Yeah. 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 That reminds me, I've got a I've always thought about it in the background. I need to contribute. I need to contribute, but I, I haven't. But I, I need to make it a goal, maybe to submit one thing to multilingual this year. Um, hey, by the way, do you happen to know Dr. Arl Lamel? Yes, the mustache. He, yes, yes, and the exactly. bagpipes. That's right. That's yes. Exactly right. Arl and I were research assistants together here at Brigham Young University, and. Uh, he actually helped me finish my thesis, my master's thesis. So Arl is cool. um, a really good friend. And I I know that he and um, who's the Yoast? I can't think of his Zetsche. Zetsche. But then he told me off for how I said it. Oh, so, did he? Zetsche. Yeah, I think it's Zetsche. <laughs> but I just said it that way because Donna Paris always said it that way. So I think it's Zetsche. On to the last question. Um, what do you have? A, uh, what's your hot take? Is there anything in the industry that uh, you think is um, really pertinent or something that's going to happen in the future in our industry? What do you think? Yeah, uh, well, this this may be more about well, this is something that I see in the industry and then I see it in in you know humanity as a whole, and I also see it in myself. so, um, you know, I, we deal with a global audience on a daily basis, um, cultural habits and value systems, they differ greatly. And it's so easy. And I'm talking in general here. It's so easy to, to develop a hostility to the people that we don't understand. Yeah. Even within our communications-based industry, where yeah. we care about understanding each other across borders, um, 
And we tend to compliment ourselves for being very open-minded and inclusive in our industry. There's still racism, there's prejudice, and there's yeah. bullying. And I'd like to see us do better at asking questions before passing judgment. And when something strikes you as wrong, to approach someone in a nonviolent way and try to establish empathy and understanding before resorting to public slander. And this is something that I've been seeing in our industry. Um, and of course, it's, a, it's applicable to, um, to our society as a whole. There's plenty of room to improve. Um, and I keep reminding myself to do better too. This is something I feel very strongly about. Yeah, Marla, thank you for bringing that up, actually. And I, I've been thinking about that as well. Um, I am mostly on Twitter. Uh, the other social media platforms I'm not on very much. And, and boy, we are so quick to, if you don't think like me, you're wrong. And um, it's dangerous and it causes, it's a, it causes problems in our society as a whole, but of all industries, we should know better, right? Yeah. And so I appreciate you bringing that up. Thanks again. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate this. Uh, this is my first interview on YouTube, my first podcast interview that I was invited to. So I want to thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This has been Life in Translation. Thank you for tuning in and keeping up on the latest trends in translation and localization. If you like what you heard, subscribe to LIT wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more from Marla, you can find her on the Localization Today podcast on multilingual.com. Thank you.